So friends, as I have been saying throughout our Gospel of Mark series, and as I'll continue to say until the end of the Gospel of Mark, I encourage you to pull out your Bible and turn to Mark chapter 8 this week so that you can follow along during the reading of the scripture and the sermon message. So as we've been doing for each message in this series, there's always space at the end where I'll ask you a few questions or provide some time so you can pause the video then and do your own reflections, perhaps right in the margins of your Bible or on a piece of paper, some of your own insights, questions, and ponderings. So before we begin to dig into this eighth chapter of the Gospel of Mark, I'll remind you again of the type of Jesus that we've met so far in this Gospel. So going back to chapter four was Jesus the teacher. Remember in that chapter there was the teaching from a boat, teaching in parables, and he has a lot to say about light and about seeds. And then he calms the storms, closing the chapter again in a boat. That's chapter four, that's Jesus the teacher. From there we go to chapter five, which is Jesus the healer. And in that chapter, remember, he's healing the man who's out in the tombs, the woman with the hemorrhage, and then the young girl that was thought to be dead. And so he was this healer restoring people into life and dignity in the community. And then we got to chapter 6. And in chapter 6, we kind of meet a couple of different Jesuses. So first, Jesus the prophet. So we hear that phrase, a prophet is without honor except in his hometown. Or a prophet is with honor except in his hometown. And then we hear this Jesus, who's sending out the disciples onto their missions, and remember, they're taking very few belongings. Then there was Jesus in that same chapter, the miracle worker. That's where we had that first feeding of the 5,000. He's walking along on water, and he's healing a whole bunch more people. Chapter 7, we met the traditions of the elders. There was a Seraphonician woman. Last week, we talked about her and her uh, discourse back and forth with Jesus. And then there was the curing of the deaf man. And so with that Seraphonician woman, remember there were a few things that we wondered about her. Was she uh, changing Jesus's mind in that moment where he healed her daughter? Was it maybe an exchange that was kind of a satire? Or maybe it was a moment in which she had a, a chance to testify as a disciple of Jesus. And so keep that in mind as we enter now into this eighth chapter of the Gospel of Mark. So friends, this morning we're going to go ahead and read and discuss as we go. I'm going to stop within the scripture and talk about it as we go along. And what we're mostly going to talk about this morning is patterns and echoes. And that's why I went into great depth about the last couple of chapters we've been in. Because I want to remind you that there's these patterns and echoes in the Gospel of Mark that are really important. So we're going to look at the places in the scripture where there are these repeats of these patterns. And so this is really a little bit of a Bible study Sunday morning. So let's lean into that together. So we start chapter eight with Jesus feeding the 4,000. And here's how the scripture goes. During those days, another large crowd gathered. And since they had nothing to eat, Jesus called his disciples to him and said, I have compassion for these people. They've already been with me for three days and they have nothing to eat. If I send them home hungry, they will collapse on the way because some of them have come a really long distance. So his disciples answered, but where in this remote place can anyone get enough bread to feed them? And Jesus said, how many loaves do you have? And they said, seven. And so Jesus told the crowd to go out on the ground and sit down. Does this sound familiar from chapter six? I think so. And when he had taken the seven loaves and given thanks, he broke them. And he gave them out to his disciples to distribute to the people. And the disciples did that. And they had a few small fish as well. And Jesus gave thanks for them also and told the disciples to distribute them. The people ate and they were satisfied. 
And afterward, the disciples picked up seven baskets full of broken pieces that were left over. About 4,000 were present. And after that, Jesus sent them away, and he got into the boat with his disciples and went to a different region. And the Pharisees came and began to question Jesus to test him, and they asked him for a sign from heaven. And so he sighed deeply and said, What does this generation mean? Why do they ask for a sign? Truly, I tell you, no sign will be given to you. And then he left them and got back into the boat and crossed again back over to the other side. So we're going to do a little bit of echoing here from Mark chapter 6. So in Mark chapter 6, there was the last large feeding miracle. And so in Mark chapter 6, there were 5,000 people plus women and children. And here in Mark chapter 8, there are 4,000 people. In Mark chapter 6, there were five loaves and two fish. And here in chapter, se- chapter 8, there are seven loaves and a few small fish. And we can notice that number seven, first in chapter six, there's five loaves and two fish equaling seven. And then in chapter eight, we have these seven loaves. And that's an important number biblically that we'll talk about in future weeks. Again, in this chapter, Jesus has compassion. And then the disciples are confused. And then Jesus gives thanks. People eat. And then there are leftovers. So that's a pattern that we see in a number of biblical stories, particularly in the Gospel of Mark. Jesus has compassion. Disciples are confused, Jesus gives thanks, and in this case, people eat and there are leftovers. And so you might recall that in the feeding of the 5,000, we talked about how this is the miracle of the potluck, the miracle of human generosity when people come together through Jesus and through these teachings. And we might still consider that this could be, again, a miracle of the potluck or perhaps another way in which Jesus' teachings and miracles are inspiring generosity of spirit. And now we have the Pharisees at the end of this section doubting Jesus, looking for a sign, which is kind of a funny thing to happen right after this miraculous group event such as this feeding. And so then Jesus sighs very deeply. And perhaps we're again seeing this echo of a human, more tired Jesus who we've met before in Mark. And then he leaves for the other side in his boat. And you'll recall in chapter 6 we talked about maybe this is a miracle feeding in which it's simply that people dug into their own baskets and created this generosity, this miracle, the potluck. Or maybe it's actually that Jesus has uh, taken these provisions and has literally multiplied them through his blessing in that moment. Or perhaps it's another sort of a, a miracle event. And so any of these are pretty valid ways to interpret what's happening here. The next section says the yeast of the Pharisees and Herod. And we start with verse 14. The disciples had forgotten to bring bread except for one loaf they had with them in the boat. Be careful, Jesus warned them. Watch out for the yeast of the Pharisees and that of Herod. They discussed this with one another and said, it is because we have no bread. Aware of their discussion, Jesus asked them, Why are you talking about having no bread? Do you still not see or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Do you have eyes but fails to see and ears but fail to hear? And don't you remember when I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many basketfuls of leftovers did you pick up? Twelve, they replied. And when I broke the seven loaves for the 4,000, how many basketfuls of pieces did you pick up? And they replied, seven. And he said to them, do you still not understand? And in this section, we read again about this motif of the very confused disciples. This is a theme that happens throughout the Gospel of Mark, these very confused disciples. They're wondering aloud, and Jesus then hears them, 
and reminds them again of his miracles. He reminds them of the feeding of the 5,000 and the feeding of the 4,000. And now we're in a bit of a privileged position today reading scripture because we're able to flip back and forth in our Bibles. But do you ever, I wonder, still feel like those confused disciples? Like despite the really good things that might happen in your life or the miraculous things that have happened in your life, that you still have this pattern of doubt in the power of God or the power of the generosity of good spirit. I know that sometimes I do feel like that, that the further away that I get from an intense or life-changing event, the more complacent I begin to feel, the more self-reliant I start to feel. Sometimes events such as perhaps what we're in right now as a human race with the coronavirus can remind us that it is in our interdependence that the Holy Spirit moves and breathes, that we can learn again to rely on one another and to rely on our best selves and our best channels of God to be in community with one another. And so these confused disciples we end this section with, and then we move on to Jesus healing the blind man at Bethsaida. And the verses go like this, starting with verse 22. They came to Bethsaida, and some people brought a blind man and begged Jesus to touch him. He took the blind man by the hand, and he led him outside the village. So again, that's away from the people. And when he had spat on the man's eyes and put his hands on them, Jesus asked, Do you see anything? And the man looked up and said, I see people. They look like trees walking around. And once more, Jesus put his hands on the man's eyes and his eyes were opened and his sight was restored and he saw everything clearly. Jesus sent him home saying, don't even go into the village. And I'm going to draw your attention here again to a couple of things. So the first is this secrecy motif. Don't even go into the village. Remember, we hear that over and over through the gospel of Mark. Don't tell anyone. Don't tell anyone who I am, what I've done for you. Don't go into the village. And the other one is this that there's this bodily nature of this one-to-one healing that Jesus is doing. So remember with the deaf man, shortly, a couple of weeks ago, or perhaps last week, um, we saw that Jesus healed the deaf man again through spit and through touching the man. And so we hear an echo of that here again with the blind man. And then we go on with verse 27. Jesus and his disciples went on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi, and on the way he asked them, who do people say that I am? And they replied, some say John the Baptist. Remember, we saw that in other uh, chapters as well. Others say Elijah and still others, one of the prophets. And then Jesus says, but what about you? Who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, you are the Messiah. And so Jesus warned them not to tell anybody about him. Again, the secrecy motif. Chapter uh, 8, verse 31 says, He then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. Jesus spoke plainly about this, and Peter took him aside and again began to rebuke him. But when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan, he said. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns." And finally, this chapter closes with verse 34. Then he called the crowd to him among, along with his disciples and said, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this 
adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in God's glory with the holy angels. These are intense words that close the chapter, um, chapter 8 in the Gospel of Mark. So as you can see, what we're starting to feel here in these closing remarks are this movement towards the end of the gospel narrative. And the gospel of Mark, remember, is the shortest and the oldest of our gospels. So in this final part of chapter 8, Peter is beginning to figure out who Jesus is, which is the Messiah. And Jesus is continuing this secrecy motif, saying, don't tell anyone who I am or what I've done for you. And Jesus then foreshadows what's to come in the Holy Week narrative, and he tells his followers of these impending events. And these are events that we will chronicle on Palm Sunday, Maundy Thursday, Good Friday, and Easter. And these events are Jesus' crucifixion, death, and then resurrection after three days in the tomb. So we'll dive into that all more closely together on Holy Week. Finally, Jesus ends with the words about the cross that when we are trying to cling too closely to our own lives, we lose them. But when we work together for the good of the gospel, taking on what it is to be a disciple, we gain this eternal life and the liberation of knowing that we are children of God interconnected forever. And so as always, each week, I invite you to take time to reflect on this scripture on your own. And here are some helpful questions that might guide you in your time of reflection. You might consider why these disciples continue to be confused here in this eighth chapter. You might consider, what does it mean to take up your cross and follow Jesus? What do you think that means societally? What do you think that means in different points of identity that intersect in your life? What does it mean for you personally? And the final question you might wonder about is, how can you practice discipleship this week?